This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with David Linthicum, SVP at Cloud Technology Partners. If you think about it, we move into a cloud computing environment, we're typically using traditional you know, encryption technologies or ID password to protect the information. And typically, it's going to be internet connected already, and that's why you see most of the hacks occur with traditional systems. Clouds aren't anywhere around. Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. David Linthicum is an SVP at Cloud Technology Partners, and it was just named the number one cloud influencer via a recent major report by Apollo Research. David is a cloud computing thought leader, executive, consultant, author, and speaker. He has been a CTO five times for both public and private companies and a CEO three times in the last 25 years. With more than 13 books on computing, more than 500 conference presentations, more than 5,000 published articles, and numerous appearances on both radio and TV, David has spent the last 20 years leading, showing, and teaching businesses how to use resources more productively and innovate constantly. He has expanded the vision of both startups and established corporations as to what is possible and achievable. David, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here today. Thank you, Jordan. Glad to be on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned, you know, I like to dig right into the origin story to get an understanding of who you are and what shapes your perspective. So first starting off, what are you most passionate about in your profession and why? I think it's a matter of eliminating waste. So I, I just think we use computing power in a wasteful way. If you go into any of the data centers and you know, I live in Virginia, which is, uh, you know, center of the universe in terms of farms and wineries and also data centers that are popping up everywhere. If you go into any one of those servers and you were doing a perf mom trying to figure out what the performance monitoring is on those systems, you would see most of them at 3%. And so I've seen this all my career. So I think a look at this hardware and software we're buying and all this power we're using as something that's just throwing money out the door and certainly warming the planet up and, you know, doing all those bad things if you're burning more power. But the ability to become more efficient and effective with the resources that we have. And it's just been a lifelong passion to get companies and get the government thinking about how to utilize these resources in a better way. So I kind of want to unpack that a little bit because I, I can't imagine, you know, as a 10-year-old, you're, you're thinking about computing power and how to save the planet. So I guess what are the things that happened that shaped your perspective? Was it your parents that influenced you? Was it an experience you had along the way? You know, what caused this drive for you? I think I was a military brat and, and I was raised all over the world and spent most of my life in Hawaii and really lived on military bases. And what they do in military bases is do things very efficiently. And so, you know, how they house people and, you know, how they eat and you know, mess halls versus restaurants and things like that. And it just kind of changed my perspective in terms of how we need to consume resources and become more effective and efficient in doing that. And if you think about it, you know, if you just eliminate, you know, some very simple things, it's really going to have no impact on your life, but it will reduce the number of resources. You put more money in your pocket, you know, however you're motivated. And that always impacted me in terms of kind of a military way of doing things or a military way of doing efficiency. Okay. And so then from that, did you pursue that directly after that and getting into school and then into your first career? Or I guess, 
at what point did this become your career path? Oh, hell no. I turned into a teenager, got all that, <laughs> started to surf because I lived in Hawaii and uh, got into cars and, you know, all those sorts of things. But when I went to college, I did, you know, pick up computer science and I decided that it was going to be the way of going. And I started to become a computer hobbyist. And so I started building PCs, which I kind of looked at as, uh, you know, means to the end in terms of resources. So here we have this thing that runs off house current versus this huge blue computer that just eats, you know, enough power for a city. And I can do some amazing things with it. So I started doing the Heathkit thing and started building the, the Commodore VIC-20s and anybody over 50 remember those, you won't. But <laughs> these were, you know, kind of cool things about leveraging resources better with newer technology. We started to network them together so we could share data and databases. And, and I was kind of on the forefront of that. In college, myself and a buddy, we ran a uh, networking consulting firm. So we ran Wire and, you know, started building the CPM-based network type systems and, you know, old stuff like ArcNet before Ethernet came around. And it was, in essence, enabling organizations, you know, to leverage computing systems so everybody could get off paper. So everything around me in terms of resource utilization, certainly early in my career, was around automation. And later on, we got into cloud and EAI and all that kind of stuff. You know, looking at your past, you jumped right into a director level role at a company right from college. And so I, I was curious what you were doing through that college experience to give you this springboard. So that makes complete sense. So can you maybe walk through coming from a tech director role for an oil company out at Fairfax, Virginia to now C-level position or through your C-level positions to now at SVP at Cloud Technology Partners? Yeah, I, I went kicking and screaming in any leadership position that I I have gotten in the past. And so I, I'm sure that was a very tough conversation. So I'm a programmer by trade. So, you know, I programmed in C and C++ and, you know, did those sorts of things, you know, pretty much professionally. And as I got into these large organizations, you know, they were looking for someone to lead the technologists, lead the geeks, so to speak, that had some sort of technical expertise. And maybe it's my haircut and maybe the fact I was wearing a suit. I, I don't know. No tattoos. I was the one who was pushed into those roles. And, and I viewed it as kind of a, I don't really want to do it, but it's probably better than I do it than some sort of non-technical person who doesn't understand the ins and outs of building something and mm -hmm. making sure people show up on time and dressing right and things like that versus, you know, getting the code written and tested and into production. So I took those jobs and, you know, took those roles early on in my career. And that led into better understanding of leadership and people and how to manage people. And I learned through mistakes, you know, over and over again. And I understood how, you know, technology fits in the context of that. And so I was kind of an early pioneer in kind of agile-based development, you know, DevOps kind of automation and the ability to kind of, you know, treat people as human beings to build an organization where everybody trusts each other, likes each other, and, and can be very productive in their roles. So through your journey, were there any major pivots that you made from the experiences that you had or, or was there any major personal growth moments that you had along the way? The personal growth moments were probably me making mistakes with many zeros on the end. You know, when I was working <laughs> companies or whatever, just starting projects that didn't work out and, you know, trusting that technology was going to do some things that we just couldn't get technology to do at the time. So building products that failed and things like that. The biggest, you know, pivot in my career is when I you know, became CTO of uh, Software G Americas, which is Saga Software, which we did through an acquisition. And this is in the late 90s. And that was kind of uh, first CTO role. I kind of played quasi CTOs in the past. But, 
you know, here I was CTO for a product company versus, you know, working for a consulting company. This I came from uh, Ernst & Young and prior to that I was with EDS and prior to that I was Mobile Oil. I kind of jumped around a bit when I was younger. And then suddenly I'm responsible for an R&D team. I'm responsible for product strategy. I'm responsible for to communicate with investors. I'm responsible for lots of things that really kind of go into being the officer of a public company. And it was a lot of burden you know, based on a lot of stress for a 30 year old, you know, 30 something person. But, you know, that was basically, you know, how I grew my career, grew my, you know, knowledge in terms of technology and learn how to build products and, and continue to learn how to how to run a development team. And there I made mistakes, made successes, but for mostly it was a success. And we were able to sell the company a few years later for a lot more than we paid for it, which is returning shareholder equity, which is how you measure success when you're a publicly traded company. Right. And so then can you give us a quick download on cloud technology partners and exactly what it is you guys do over there? Yeah, cloud technology partners is a uh, consulting organization. So we're an objective vendor neutral organization that advises typically the global 2000, but we do have smaller companies as well on the utilization of cloud technology. And that's both we have a cap program, which is the migration. So we take, you know, the 2000 or so applications that are within enterprises and move them into the cloud, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, those sorts of things. And then also the ability to do specialized projects. So we have an IoT team, a big data team. We have a uh, machine learning team. Now we have a serverless technology team to work with companies to enable them to basically leverage the technology better. So I work, I work primarily with the digital enablement team, but have done some things with CAP. We have methodologies, processes, build DevOps organizations, those sorts of things. So we're kind of the super geeks um, behind <laughs> people within an organization that can can help people answer the questions in terms of what needs to move to the cloud, how I move to the cloud, how I deal with security, governance, performance, compliance, you know, all the things that are really kind of impediments to folks moving in the cloud today. And so about 200 people, uh, when I joined the company, it was about 10. And so we're growing by leaps and bounds and we're always looking for help for smart people. Keep that in mind. Okay. And they're also always looking for smart clients. So that's Cloud Technology Partners. Awesome. Can you maybe give us a couple examples when you say leverage technology better, some examples of how you work with clients and help them leverage technology better? Yeah, sure. So in other words, we have clients that are that are mandated to move to the cloud. The, the board of directors has come to them and said, hey, guess what? We're shutting down the data centers. So go figure something else out. Either move to a managed hosting environment or more likely is what they're pushing them to figure out how to move to the cloud. And you have two years to do it. So it's a matter of coming in and working with a client in terms of triaging the existing application. So what are the applications written in? What's the data format? What's the model? You know, are the applications tightly coupled with the data so they're easily portable? Do they have to be refactored, which means reprogramming aspects of them? And all these things really kind of come to bear in terms of doing the planning in terms of how you're going to move the applications. And so all that stuff occurs in a rapid period of time. You know, typically, you know, day one application to, to go through and figure out how much work it's going to take to make the move. And then it's a matter of setting up the migration factory. And you're going to have a couple of ways to move applications. If you're lucky, you can do something called lift and shift. So in other words, we take the code and take the data and move it to a platform analog on AWS, such as Oracle SQL Server. We have Aurora on that runs on AWS, you know, AWS RDS, things like that. And typically not a lot of changes have to occur. That's few and far between. A lot of applications have to be partially refactored, which means they have to be reprogrammed to run in the particular cloud. The data has to be decoupled. You know, have to do some smart things in terms of the architecture. 
And then some of the applications have to be majorly refactored, which means rewriting a lot of the application in order for it to leverage some of the cloud-native features on the platform we're moving into. And, and by the way, some of the applications, and typically it's 30%, can't move. So they're uneconomically viable to move into the cloud. Either there's too much that has to occur to them to make the change, or they're just not that wor worth it to the company anymore. In many cases, we may put those in a hosting environment, such as a managed service provi provider, such as Rackspace. Uh, data pipe, bunch of others that are out there. So it sounds like what you do is you know really big and complex and very high stakes. And so I kind of want to get a better idea of what this process is like. So anyone considering doing something might have some better insight at the proper way to go about this. So when you know being a consulting company, when you first look at these projects, how do you evaluate and prioritize these changes that need to occur for the organization? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you do it to align it to the business. So once we have the applications and what has to occur and the money you can spend, the budget, and what are the objectives for, you know, moving into the cloud? How is it going to build with the business? How do we measure success? The financials, which is a big part of it. We have, you know, a set of business analysts that typically come along with us to work in engagements. And they're there to look at the economic viability. And from there, we do the priorities in terms of applications that move and data Bases that need to be migrated and transformed and, and additional technology needs to be layered in there to deal with security and governance and things like that. And because the reality is, is most companies, they have an infinite amount of money to spend. And so right. we have to kind of put a cap on it in terms of what you can get and what, where you can go. And in many cases, they want a lot more than they can actually afford. And also they have to do so with very little time, which is going to be a compressed life cycle for, you know, global 2000 company that may take a year to make any kind of common decision. So it's basically working with them. And sometimes I think I should have got a psychology degree rather than a computer <laughs> science degree to understand what obstacles are ahead of them and then kind of guide them through, you know, how they're going to get through these obstacles in a certain amount of time. And we, we can typically provide ways and methods and tools that will, you know, make it move a lot faster. But what's reality versus what's desired? And, and I think that's the big thing with cloud computing. Remember, remember that we, we don't have many companies, with the exception of a few, that have significant portions of applications in the cloud. You know, typically it may be 5% at this point. So moving forward, they have to think about how that's going to occur. And we're breaking new ground for them in terms of their understanding of the cloud-based systems and how their applications are going to migrate and move and the reality of it and how the technology is going to fare out and how it's going to work out for them. So in many instances, I become kind of the designated buzzkill, you know, telling them <laughs> You know, some applications can't move, some data sets can't move. By the way, it's, you know, pretty expensive. And by the way, it gets complex pretty quick when you consider security, governance and compliance and, you know, all the other things that really kind of come to bear. So I kind of look at myself as a, you know, someone who's a, like a lawyer or a doctor, you know, someone who's guiding someone through a very difficult period of their life and making sure that they understand where they're going, how they're getting there, the complexities and the problems that they have to solve and the resources they need to put in place to make it happen. You know, it's a satisfying thing, but at the same time, it's a little bit stressful and frustrating, I think, on both sides. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, just by the complexity and the high stakes nature of what this is, it's obvious, you know, that's going to be really expensive, but. And they could kill their business. <laughs> yeah. If they move it into the cloud, they don't put the proper security in place or hack, they lose, you know, confidence of their customers. I mean, that's going to be, you know, a couple billion dollar mistakes, even take the business out. Yeah, it's crazy. So I guess, have you noticed a trend or obstacle that comes up most often that cloud computing has the greatest impact on? 
Yeah, believe it or not, it's security. So the biggest obstacle that I have is what I call the folded arm gang. So even though they invite me into a meeting and they want me to explain about cloud computing, they don't understand why they need to move to the cloud. They don't understand what the opportunities are. And, you know, this seems like another kind of technology trend to them. And security is typically what's pushed up in front of me is the reason that they're not going to do it. My data is sacred and therefore my data needs to exist on premise. So the biggest fundamental thing at Cloud Computing Solve is actually make makes things more secure, typically. And if you think about it, we move into a cloud computing environment, we're typically using traditional you know, encryption technologies or ID password to protect the information. Typically, it's going to be internet connected already, and that's why you see most of the hacks occur with traditional systems. Clouds aren't anywhere around. And then we move them into the cloud. We're using advanced security system, advanced encryption, identity access management, directory services, you know, two-factor authentication, you know, all these various tricks to make their information typically more secure than it is when based on where we source the information from. And so that is kind of a surprise to people. So as they move into the cloud, they expect security to be an issue and they're afraid to move certain data in the cloud. The reality is that their data is probably more exposed on existing on-premise internet connected systems because they're not doing a good job in updating the systems to deal with vulnerabilities. You know, hackers are exploiting that stuff where if you put it in the cloud, you have a whole company such as Amazon, Google, or Microsoft that's really thinking proactively in terms of how to protect those systems. They're monitoring those systems to ensure that they're not going to get hacked or ensure they're, they're looking at attack vectors and ways in which people are trying to get in there. And they're throttling that stuff all the time. But it's a fun thing to kind of take people through and they realize, oh, this is better. Wow, that's really interesting because it's, it's very counterintuitive, right? You'd think that putting something in an, like on the cloud, you're going to be more exposed, but you're saying almost the biggest impact is in the security, the extra security that you get by going on the cloud. So that I can see that how that could be the biggest hurdle in a client's mind to get over. Yeah, it makes security more affordable. It makes security more available. I mean, all those are cloud native services you're able to leverage from Amazon and Microsoft and Google. And the big thing is, you know, you can certainly be stupid in the cloud. It's still a multi-tenant environment and you're in charge of your tenant. In other words, your, your space that you're renting and you can certainly expose that out, but it's super, super easy to be a lot more secure in the cloud and super, super more cost effective. And so I think that's the biggest thing that clients are impacted from. Is there another impact that it can have beyond the security that you often target with clients? Yeah, typically the agility is something they don't understand. So I used to preach agility all the time back in the service-oriented architecture days and the EI days. And, you know, I was CTO of an EI, EII companies and enterprise application integration, middleware technology. And then the reality is I said, well, the reason we're going to move to cloud is the, the cost benefit going to be there, certainly OpEx versus CapEx. And we, we can talk about that for days. But the reality is you're going to be more agile and you're going to have compressed time to market. You can build things quickly. You can change your processes quickly. You can add applications quickly. You can add resources quickly. So you don't have to go through cycles and cycles of hardware and software buys and the acquisition of data center space. And you know, all these things enterprises are traditionally going through. I mean, people showed me these processes and how you get an application into production and all these things, you know, submit the PO for data center space and, you know, start billing and buy hardware and software that's to go through a, uh, you know, six month com competition and you have to get on an existing contract. And it takes a year, sometimes two years to get applications and databases into production. And that's way too slow. And so in cloud computing, I can just go out and just get the hardware I want and just provision it. And I get the databases I want and just provision them. And I can load the applications on them and I can load the data on them. 
And you get going in a very quick period of time. And I, don't, I can also change those things. I can expand or contract them based on my needs, add additional hardware and software. I can change those processes. And you know, I mean, it's not without problems. I mean, everything, every technology has a trade-off, but it's a lot quicker than buying damn hardware and software, which was just killing corporate America. And when, when I was at some of the bigger companies I worked for, I'm not going to mention them now, but you know, just trying to get applications into production was a logistical nightmare to the point I had to have three people working for me just to track that stuff, just to get the hardware and software in place by the time the applications were ready for testing. And to me, that's unacceptable. And it should be unacceptable to CIOs out there and unacceptable to CEOs out there beyond the, the resource thing. And it's certainly going to consume less resources by sharing resource. It's a matter of becoming more agile and quick at your business. And, and that's going to be mean the difference between failure and, and success for most of the businesses out there. For a large organization, is there a specific threshold that I need to be aware of that would warrant making a larger investment into cloud computing? Or is it more of a time thing that it's now technology allows this to happen to the extent that it can, so everyone should be doing it? I guess, how are you qualifying when it's the appropriate time to take a serious look into this and make a major investment? Well, everybody should take a look at it. It doesn't mean you have to adopt it. And there's certain organizations out there that, you know, in cloud technology now, other than a few applications, utilization of SaaS and things like that, you know, may be contraindicated depending on what's going on. One of the things that we do as a firm is we're not necessarily in love with cloud. We always ask ourselves the critical questions in terms of should this workload move to the cloud? What benefits are they going to get? How much is it going to cost to make it happen? And what operational savings are going to occur once it's in place and it's in a cloud ops kind of a process? And of course, every workload doesn't move to the cloud where, you know, there's about a 70-30 split right now in terms of applications and workloads that really shouldn't be moved to the cloud because they're typically non-economically viable to make the changes to make that happen. And so ultimately, it is something that you should look at with any kind of a critical eye. You shouldn't have your arms folded, you know, and totally just dismiss it as something that's evil and not necessarily an option. I run into that all the time. And the other extreme, and I run into this all the time these days, is people who are hype-driven. They love to manage by magazine. That was a term I used 20 years ago when I actually read magazines. And they're just kind of following, you know, this shiny object. And we're there to make cloud work for them because they want cloud. And it's going to be kind of a forced fit. And we have to kind of slow them down and make them understand the realities of it. You know, versus the other extreme we think cloud's evil and I have to kind of defreeze them from that thinking and kind of understand the, the opportunities that are there for them and there for the company in terms of moving in this direction. And you got to kind of walk down the middle. And one of the things I never do is show up at a client and sell cloud. You know, I'm there to basically sell them on a solution, how they can become better at leveraging their resources. Cloud's a tool, just, another, just like all the other tools are going to come down the line in the next 10 years. And it may be needed uh, for certain aspects of IT, it may not. Is there a point in which cloud computing becomes critical to the business? Yeah, I think it's becoming critical now. I mean, you look at organizations such as larger banks that are starting to move some of their bigger processing out into the cloud. So now cloud computing is critical for them. They've kind of crossed the critical mark where they may have 25%, 30% of their applications, and they're typically the high visibility applications and sometimes customer-facing applications where if the cloud ceases to work properly for them or they do something wrong, they stand to lose a lot of market and market share. And so that's a bit scary for them because they don't own the cloud companies. They're just subscribing to a service. But uh, as we see people who are moving 
to these critical phases, you know, we're crossing your fingers to, you know, make sure everything's running correctly, but they've been there for a couple of years and they seem, things seem to be running pretty well. And some of the larger organizations that we're working with and some of the small organizations, specifically smaller organizations are already into cloud in a critical way. They may have started, you know, 10 years ago when cloud, you know, was, was quite all the rage and they may have 80% of their workloads, 90% of the workloads, and sometimes hundred percent of their workloads, you know, in the cloud, they use SaaS based accounting, they use Amazon for storage, they compute services, things like that. So they own no hardware and software. They have no data center space. And for them, the cloud is everything because it's running the business. You know, it's amazing to me. I work with people in small companies who run IT shops. They've never seen a server. So they've never set anything up in a data center. Everybody runs around with laptops and they connect to the cloud and they do their business. But, you know, their IT is virtual. Everything exists someplace else. They don't have to see it. They don't have to deal with it things like that. And they're perfectly comfortable with it. Well, the large IT shops uh, in these larger companies are a little bit more of a tougher sell, but they're crossing the critical stage as well, where 30%, 40% of their processing will be in, in the cloud by the end of next year. And that's going to be uh, pretty much the uh, tipping point. So you have all these companies that are making major investments into mobile and these applications. And like, for example, Under Armour, who has over 50 apps, right? They, whether acquired or developed. And so just the idea of aggregating all of this data, how has mobile affected the way that you approach cloud computing strategy? Yeah, mobile needs to be ubiquitous in terms of the ability to develop applications, you know, that are customer facing. And it has to be, you know, systemic to pretty much most of the clouds out there. All of the big cloud providers have mobile-based platforms and there's, you know, thousands of technolo technologies out there and companies out there that's some more mobile-based computing. And I kind of look at the cloud as really where the action occurs and you know, everything else we carry. I mean, I own five computers and, you know, iPads and, you know, iPhones and things like that. It just becomes kind of a terminal, you know, into these uh, cloud-based systems. And so you have to be able to communicate with the different platforms that you're on, you know, iOS and Android, and make sure you have development tools and ability to get it access information beyond the cloud-based services. They basically just perform the back-end systems. So with the mobile computing, everything is typically in the cloud. You're not going to typically want to store that on a phone just because the phone has limited storage, but you want that storage for your songs and videos. You don't want to put your consumer data on there. And plus, you know, you have data security issues and things like that. So I always look at it when I build a cloud, especially I'm doing something that's net new, that it has to have a mobile component. It has to be able to communicate with different types of platforms, it has to have basically hide processing and data behind APIs that are usable for mobile platforms that are going to be in the cloud and not necessarily have to be stored locally. You know, all these things really have to be built in. So then would you say a mobile first strategy more so even pushes organizations to be more in the cloud then? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're going to move into the mobile computing, the cloud is ubiquitous. It basically has to be there because we're not going, as I mentioned, either for security reasons or cost reasons, resource reasons, we're going to try to keep as much data in the cloud as we can and not store anything if we can locally. I mean, uh, if my device is ever stolen, my information is protected, you know, in the back end systems that it's hooked up to. So if even if people have access to my device, they typically can't get to the back end systems that really run the business. And those are protected and encrypted and things like that. So Anybody who is looking at a mobile strategy, and that certainly includes devices and things like that, I mean, people are 
running applications in their TV sets now and, you know, all kinds of wacky stuff that's going out there in the, in the IoT space. You have to look at cloud-based systems because we do not want to store anything locally. We want to access back-end systems for shareability, for performance, for security, you know, all these sorts of things. And, you know, dealing with mobile architects, you know, it's funny, people who built mobile applications 10 years ago, you know, and seven years ago, were already in the cloud. They were already, you know, building clouds for this, these back-end environments. And, you know, they didn't call them cloud. They just, everything was as a service or database, you know, on, over the open internet, whatever. But they kind of pioneered all that stuff. In fact, a lot of the tricks we learned in terms of building cloud-based applications, utilization of lightweight APIs and things like that, certainly micro, utilization of microservices, you know, kind of came from the mobile world. So you have AI and virtual reality, augmented reality, new technology coming and this ubiquity of devices and all of this stuff happening. Is there anything that you're really excited about in particular? Yeah, I, I think the machine learning stuff, which I've been, you know, my first job out of college was as a artificially intelligent analyst. And I actually taught it at the college level. I taught Lisp computing when I was a professor. I really liked it and thought it was poten- had a lot of potential. The big problem with AI, machine learning instance, whatever, is the fact that we had to spend so much money on processing power. In fact, you know, I sized one time when I was at Boeing Computer Services way back, you know, I just got out of college. It was what it would take to run a AI platform that actually would have impact, the ability to look at data and things like that and make determinations of it, just like, you know, 100 experts are looking at things. And I think it was like a billion dollars. So no company can afford a billion dollars with hardware and software and technology you know, fast forward to a cloud computing era where you can leverage machine learning, you get a free account, in fact, from, from other cloud providers out there on demand, and it may cost you $25 a month for the same infrastructure. And so we're able to cull through petabytes of data, able to determine patterns, we're able to look at information in an abstract way so we can actually make decisions based on it learning over and over again. So we're not only setting up a pattern of logic, which is going through the information to find out certain things and doing pattern matching and data matching, but the ability kind of as it looks at the data, you know, learn about the trends, become smarter, time goes on. So if we marry data, you know, petabyte-based databases with machine learning, then we have the ability to do outcome-based diagnostic to make sure that, you know, I'm getting uh, the right treatment when I'm in a healthcare facility based on information they're gathering off of me, you know, wearable devices, things like that I'm wearing over time. And the ability to kind of look at cases for the last 20 years and look at the outcome base that occurred there. And for my, you know, type and person and sex and weight and all that stuff, what's the best treatment for me? And and the ability to look at the same thing in financial. So we're picking the right stocks and and the ability to kind of just become better at automating things by the ability to organically learn within the system versus, you know, setting up logic, you know, logical things, which we're used to doing as programmers. So it's going to take a bit of a different mindset. I find that programmers are still in the dark ages. It doesn't matter how young they are in terms of capabilities of AI and the ability to set up learning models and things like that, you know, takes a bit of learning unto themselves. However, now I'm seeing the tools out there become cheap and better and also they see the outcomes of these machine learning based systems, self-driving cars and uh, phones you can talk to and, you know, Alexa and all other th- things that are kind of making our lives better. Now that we see the impact of that, I think we're going to get better and better at it. I think we're maybe 1% there and we're, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were no percent there. And now that's going to basically change our lives. It's going to start looking at things and dealing with things and it's going to allow us to be brilliant as human beings, and it's going to deal with the mundane things 
over and over again, and we don't have to do it. So I'm more excited about that than anything else. Impact the business, impact the personal life, impact on uh, making our lives better in terms of health, in terms of money, in terms of uh, becoming more efficient at doing computing and, you know, even helping us as we, uh, we build, we build these base systems. I can relate in that. I'm a process geek. So artificial intelligence is something I'm really excited for. Also, as far as it becoming a cornerstone in our lives, how long do you think we're out from that? Oh, I think we're probably maybe five years out. And that's probably a very conservative guesstimate. If you think about it today, people are listening to the show. I mean, they're dealing with Alexa and Siri and all these other things that are having you know, kind of their beneficial life within a core to the benefit of life. And and now we have the ability to kind of build these things into business processes, which we couldn't before. So David, what's the coolest thing you're working on right now that you want everyone to check out? Edge computing. I did a edge computing architecture for uh, my column in IEEE. I think it was an IoT based magazine for IEEE. And that's kind of funny because it's kind of anti-cloud because it actually takes some processing out of the centralized cloud and moves it to the edge. And the reason that's important is as we build these IoT-based devices, and they're typically, you know, not connected all the time with cloud-based systems, they have to be able to do some processing and gather data unto themselves. And how you do that is a bit of a dance. And you get information back to a centralized computer and the ability to do processing at the edge and things like that. So we have fog computing and we have, you know, all these other things that are emerging and I started working on that, you know, maybe 10 years ago and building some, you know, process control systems for, you know, factory floors and things like that. And it's interesting how we kind of went from a centralized computing environment with timeshare when I first got into computing, you know, back to decentralized with many computers and PCs. And now we've kind of gotten back into centralized computing with the cloud. And now we're decentralizing aspects of that basically to deal with performance and reliability and security issues. And, and so I've been focusing on that. Focusing on the machine learning thing we just talked about, the ability in doing some research and getting, you know, some of my clients smarter on leveraging this technology, specifically my product clients, folks who are doing process control and maintenance and even tax uh, systems, you know, the ability to kind of have something that's able to learn and, you know, be able to do learning models and things like that. Still, still skeptical, but it's something that I enjoy doing, which is leading, bleeding the edge. And uh, I'm going to continue doing it. You know, I know you're really active on Twitter and you're on LinkedIn. Also, we have the cloudtp.com website. Where should we go to follow, you know, these things that you're working on and keep tabs on your work? Well, I have a blog on InfoWorld I've had for 10 years, a cloud blog. So InfoWorld.com. I write for Tech Target, search AWS and search cloud. Also write for IEEE, as I just mentioned. I do the cloud blog there along with some other great bloggers and academic types. I have a podcast too, Cloud, Cloud Weekly Podcast. I do a lot of speaking. And also I have 18 courses out on lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A, on uh, cloud, uh, from beginning cloud, understanding core concepts, which I love doing, you know, all the way up to serverless-based computing and, you know, some and cloud architecture courses. There's three of them, and as well as cloud migration. So if you're looking for my work, it's probably easy to find, but, you know, check those out specifically. Great. And I will link to all of these in the show notes section of your episode, David, so that everyone can go there directly and browse all these various channels to consume in whichever way they want to consume. So also make sure to tune in this Friday to our rapid fire round where David's going to be sharing some of his most valuable resources. Well, David, thanks so much uh, for spending some time with us today. It was a pleasure to have you on and to dig into your experience and for you to share really a lot what's happening on the cloud computing side and, and really 
how we should be looking at it and making investments into it as we get to that point. So again, thank you for spending some time with us today. Anytime, Jordan. Hey, thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in this Friday for this week's guest resources from our rapid fire question round. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit EmergeMobileFirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first. Thank you.